Rivendell Bicycles has played a huge influence on me. If you're unfamiliar with them, Grant Peterson, the founder of Riv, has long been a voice for beautiful but functional bikes that eschew the latest fads. So no electronic shifting, no internal routing, no press fit bottom brackets. He also popularized the concept of an S240 or sub 24 overnight bike tour. He's been an advocate for not having to wear special clothing or special shoes or special pedals just to ride a bike. In a big way, I think he's also influenced riders and now brands like Ron slash Ultra Romance and Matt from Crust Bikes. Today's podcast is audio from a shop visit that we shot there a few weeks ago. Before we get started, though, I do want to thank the sponsor of this podcast, Arkel. Uh, we've used their bags in the past, and they are extremely robust. If you're familiar with their panniers, they use this really herky metal cam lock system that is going absolutely nowhere. Also, 80% of their bags are made in Canada with U.S. sourced fabrics. They've also developed a new tool on their website to help you find your perfect painter. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes. So if you are stoked that the podcast is back, please give Arkel a visit. And if you're a Patreon supporter, you get 15% off Arkel products. Win-win for everybody. So since this is a podcast, I'll set the stage a little bit. If you've never been, Rivendell HQ is in a small industrial park with uh, these units that have big roll-up garage doors, and they're surrounded by, of all things, auto repair shops. Yes, there is some irony in there. Their showroom has more of an air of a working-class space than a boutique. There's black and white photos uh, enlarged on the wall from different bike rides. There's a glass case with film camera and other kind of interesting objects. There's old bike and concert posters, and I believe there was even a record player in the back. The place feels lived in. No nonsense, but with some bit of intrigue and flair. So just like their bikes. So I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit nervous when I was doing this tour. It's really intimidating to interview people that have played a huge influence on you. And with that, we'll start the tour with Grant. I'm so nervous, Grant. This is like the pinnacle of our trip right here. Oh, man, there is nothing to be nervous. And that puts a lot of pressure on, yeah. uh, yeah. on you or me. On me. <laughs> on you. Yeah. We have six units here. They're each 24 by 40. So we have roughly 6,000 square feet. We're the biggest tenant in this building. And most of it's car, auto body stuff and car places. But we're the bicycle people. This is our showroom. The other rooms are just storage and office stuff and all the exciting stuff <laughs> kind of in shop where, where we do the bike assembly. This is a great way to to display the bikes. It works well for us. We have customer and customer bikes, employee bikes, prototypes, old bikes. Do you have any prototypes in the rack right now? Yeah, there's a lot of them. This is sort of like the platypus bike, but we use Roscoe Bubby sort of as a catch all name for small production run bikes. How many uh, iterations do you usually go through um, in the prototyping phase before you settle on, on the final design? Two or three actual metal prototypes and there may be eight or 10 detail changes on drawings. Okay. And then we test them and ride them thoroughly because we want to know more about our bikes than the people that we, who buy them. Right. So we have to do that. So the, and the things that we look for, we, uh, we always look for tire clearances. You know, we try to get 
um, good clearance around the side of the tire here mm -hmm. in, in case the wheel wobbles. And we try to get a similar clearance. We try to match clearances. Vertical clearances above the tire and lateral clearances around the tire on the fork um, and on the seat stays and chain stays. I think when I first discovered Rivendell, you had more kind of traditional diamond style frames and uh, now it's, it's, it's a whole variety of shapes. Was there like an aha moment where you decide to uh, explore other kind of shapes of bikes? Well, we started off with one and a half degree up sloping top tubes. You know, the, the whole idea is that you don't ride a frame, you ride on the contact point. So you've got your pedals and the saddle height and then wherever you're grabbing the handlebars and that can change according to the shape of the handlebar. You know, we don't do high saddles, low bars, aerodynamic positions. When I see a bike set up with a high saddle and a low bar, that's a bike posed for a photograph. That's how we used to do it in the Bridgestone catalogs too. Right. <laughs> you know, jack up the uh, saddle and lower the bar and put you in this cheetah sprinting position, but nobody rides like that. I mean, not, not our customers, nobody here. I mean, not even Mark rides. <laughs> that much like that. I mean, probably more than anybody else. As we're sitting around standing, we have sort of erect backs and stuff. And when you sit down at a table, you have that. And when you walk, you have that. And even when you run, sprinters may start off on the blocks leaning forward. But you know, as soon as they're out of the blocks, you know, they're pretty much upright. They're leaning forward, I don't know, five degrees or something. Yeah. It's weird that bicycle riders are leaned over so much and that the classical position, the position that you see that is supposed to exemplify performance and experience and speed is a position that most people are not comfortable with and puts a lot of weight on their hands. So we don't sell racing bikes. I mean, racers can do whatever they want. You know, we don't try to influence racers, but more importantly, we aren't influenced by racing dogma, classic stuff like that. Um, you know, we have sort of classical tube proportions and joinery with lugs and some TIG welding and all of that. So there's a classical look to the bike. And because of that, sometimes people see our bikes and think that we're, they're homages to the past or something right. you know, like that. And they aren't at all. I mean, we want people to be comfortable on bikes and to use them as daily transportation. We don't have any hierarchy where racing's at the top. And then somewhere down here is commuting. <laughs> yeah, like licensed racing and then weekend warring. Yeah, and then commuting is always at the bottom. And so it, it's common for people to come in and say, well, I'm not gonna race or anything, or I'm not gonna do this or anything. Our customers uh, are just, I think, regular people who like to ride bikes. I think, I think one of the challenges with um, your bikes is that they don't fall into those clean kind of categories that the industry has made. It's not like a, a road bike or a mountain bike. It's just this, this weird kind of thing that, that serves both. Do you find that to be the case? I mean, even a Bridgestone, you know, when we came out with the X01, showed it at a trade show, you know, for dealers and everyone wanted to know what kind of bike it was, what category it fell into. Our categories are sort of road bikes, and, and a road bike for us is the tire that takes, a, a bike that takes tires up to at least 35 millimeters with a fender. Then we started, then we had like mountain bikes early on, sort of split the difference with something that we call 
and we called back in 2005 even uh, country bikes. Mm -hmm. Country bikes are now sort of gravel bikes. Our mountain bikes, we call them hilly bikes right now, <laughs> and, and this is sort of creating a category or something, but we don't do mountain bikes with suspension. We don't do them with uh, disc brakes or anything like that. So when you say mountain bikes, conjures up an image of the kind of bike that we don't do. So it's a, it, do. Set, it sets up expectations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's carry on with the tour. Uh, what's, uh, this looks like, is this product pickup for, yeah. for customers? That yeah, are customers town? can pick up stuff, so the invoices are there. One of our customers did this watercolor of a camera. Nice. We're gonna get a new bandana, bunch of lugs on it. Cool. And this is the prototype of the bandana. <laughs> no changes on the prototype, we're gonna keep it like that. Bunch of photographs around. There's a Goins poster that we have. I think one thing that, um, that you guys are known for is that early on you were selling kind of bike adjacent interesting products like you know hatchets, Trangia sets. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what made you want to, to do that? I like stuff other than <laughs> bikes. I don't like you do? anything as, as much as, but and I think a lot of people do. I'm gonna try to make this really short, but I sort of want to get beyond the Bridgestone years, but the fact is, you know, I did work there for a while and my time there influenced my view of bikes and the market and all that kind of stuff. In the last 10 months or so of, uh, Bridgestone, we started this thing called the Bridgestone Owners Bunch, and Bridgestone was just losing all kinds of money. Uh, and the Bridgestone Owners Bunch, uh, we had a small budget, it had to be profitable, and we ended up selling bikes direct because dealers weren't buying them, so we sold them direct. We got money before we didn't have to give terms. We got money before, cash before delivery, mm -hmm. which was wonderful. And then we started selling, you know, the last of the horsehide baseballs ever made, you know. <laughs> we sold a few other books, and just I was just looking for interesting things to sell to this sort of select group of people. Mm -hmm. And they sold, and the Bridgestone Owners Bunch was profitable, and it helped us make payroll there. And so it was kind of fun because I could indulge myself a little bit with some non-bike stuff and we had a small little team there yeah of uh, in the marketing department it sort of uh, i proved that it worked there to me and it was fun and so we did it here too in the early days of rivendell it was necessary to get you know whatever we could get right uh, to sell and it, the emphasis has always been on bicycles and now bicycles carry us without bicycles, we don't have a business, but I still like to get some of the other fun things. I feel like more bike shops are, are doing that uh, now, but you guys were definitely the, the first that I was aware of where you know you could get kind of these interesting bike adjacent stuff that, that fits that uh, similar lifestyle or aesthetic. Um, I don't know if you viewed it as a, a purely marketing thing or it was your, your genuine interest, but it, you know, it seemed, it seemed to be cutting edge at, at the time. I think it's good that companies do that. I mean, bicycles should be, you bring them into your life, into a life that already has other things and other interests in it, you know, so. So we've got uh, the showroom, <coughs> people can pick up stuff. What's in the case back here? Doodads. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, sometimes people give us cameras, sometimes the cameras work. 
<laughs> if they don't work, we can still put them in there because like a manual film camera is an interesting looking thing. It's a beautiful object. And we've got some lugs and some soap. And if there were no COVID around, we would probably use this more and embellish it more, spiff it up a little bit. It's not like <clears throat> people come here to look at all the groovy stuff in the walls and right. that are on display. <laughs> I mean, that would be my dream to do that. What's on the, the table there with all the, the lugs and, and stuff? Yeah, there's some lugs, a hatchet head. It got burned in a fire, and we, I think we gave the guy a new hatchet if he sent us the head. A hammer. And it gets used for tapping <laughs> in things. Nice. And a bunch of lugs. So we, we've got like 45 or 50 different molds for various lugs and four crowns. You know, lugs are beautiful things, and that's an interesting lug. And uh, they reinforce joints. So are these going on current models? Uh, a lot of these are. This one is not on a current model right now. We get 3D printed versions huh. of lugs. So was it correct? Was it take to to have a lug produced? <clears throat> Sounds like it's a, ex, an expensive process. It's not that hard, and it's not <laughs> that expensive. No, <laughs> no, it's remarkably easy and inexpensive. I think if you're in contact with an investment caster, you know, who does lugs, they send you a drawing of one of their lugs. You know, or this is assuming you're starting from scratch. You, know, you see the different views of the lugs. You change the contours with a pencil and white out or whatever you've got there. Um, this is, you know, if you, aren't, if you don't have the CAD file for it, and they aren't going to send you that. You can just say, I want a lug sort of like this, but uh, I don't want a point there. I want a round spoon there. I want it to be kind of easy to braise so you have a big window there. And I want the side view, I want it to look interesting. A lot of the things with lugs is that, I mean, the way I think about it is I want somebody in 50 years to be able to look at one of our bikes and think, hmm, if somebody cared about that piece, somebody, right. I mean, there was some thought that went into it. It's not just a simple joint, a simple generic joint. If, if it has this lug on it, even if the bike has no decals on it, then it means that it's our bike and right. somebody could probably look that up. So what's this uh, partial frame here? Uh, oh, it's cut in half. <laughs> yeah, cut in half. This was made in Japan by a company called Toyo. It has a really beautiful joint here. I think it was cut in half in America. And then we just showed the... How the tube sets in the lug. And yeah, how it goes in there. You know, and a lot of people have no idea how thin tubes actually are. Like right. This tube here is six-tenths of a millimeter thick. And that's ridiculously thin. And yet, if you go to point 0.8, right. it reads thicker than it is. You know, huh. it, it, I mean, and people will look at a tube and they have no idea how thin the walls actually are. And on our bikes, you know, we try to have a comfortable wall thickness. We don't want the bike to just barely huh. hold together. We want it to have a little bit of a cushion. When people throw out numbers like 868 or something, that's it's a yeah, reference to... Yeah, that's point 0.8, point 0.6, point 0.8. And on our top tubes, typically these days, it's 0.9 here for about 100 millimeters, and then 0.7. Okay. On a top tube, and this is maybe too much detail than just my opinion, <laughs> but top tubes are typically double butted. I mean, in the classic frame, and it like could be 0 0.8, 0 0.5, 0 0.8. 
but this joint is stressed more than this joint, mm -hmm. so you don't really need just for strength this to be 0.8. You need a certain amount of thickness to soak up the heat of brazing. Mm. But we tend to do like 0.7 here because this is like the least stressed joint on the frame right here and this whole part of the tube. Then we have a little bit thicker in here. So it's thinner here, thicker here, and it's thicker there just so if the handlebar swings around, it's a little bit more dent resistant. Right, just won't like, like crumple right there. Yeah. So what's the, I mean, these numbers sound pretty small. Like in terms of weight savings, when someone specs out like a, a really like thin tube set, are they actually saving that much weight? No, uh, the difference between say a, what I would consider too light for us and what most people would consider too heavy for them right. is maybe two ounces in a tube or an ounce and a half depending. Okay, yeah. So it's really not that much. And then you add them up, you know, with lugs, lugs add more weight than tip welding, for example, and brazons and all that. And if you want to have a certain amount of cushion in the frame, just resistance to injury from running into the back of a car or whatever, you know, you'll end up with a frame that weighs a pound, two pounds, sometimes three pounds more if it's a big trail bike. But that's still a small percentage of the total weight of the rider and the frame. The weight difference is less than 2% between a heavy frame and a light frame of the overall complete bike and typical rider weight on it. What else we got? Well, here's what, here's what we got. These are uh, 3D printings of part of a derailleur that we're working on. Oh yeah, the derailleur. Yeah. Should we go into that now? Sure, we can go into it now. What's with the derailleur? Like why go through that process? Personally, I think that the best design derailers ever were the Shimano's Rapid Rise derailers of the early 90s and then later the early 2000s. They failed in the market because people didn't like the idea of having to move a shifter the other way to get the low gear or something. Right. But it's so easy and I have bikes with normal and Rapid Rise derailers on them and they're I mean, it's so easy. If you can eat spaghetti with a fork without stabbing yourself in the <laughs> cheek, then you can make the, then you can adapt to a rapid rise. But nobody makes them anymore, and Shimano doesn't make them anymore. And yeah. if Shimano did make them, then we certainly wouldn't be trying to make one. I don't think people are gonna care about this, but I'll just tell you. <laughs> like in a, a normal derailleur, the rear derailleur, if you cut the cable, if you relax the cable, it defaults the spring pulls it to the hard gear, to the small cog. And then this other kind, when you relax the cable, it goes, it defaults to the- Easy gear. To the easy gear. And so with the rapid rise derailleur, with conventional shifters, they aren't conventional anymore, but with, let's say with bar end shifters, you would push them in the same direction to get the same effect. Always the left one, you push it forward and front derailleur kicks it down to the granny. In a rapid rise derailleur, when you push the lever forward, it kicks it to the small gear. Mm -hmm. So easy, hard, that's the motion. Right. And it works a similar way with down tube shifters or thumb shifters. So it, it, intuitively it's easier, but from a practical point of view, <clears throat> um, if you're shifting in friction, which nobody does, but a lot of our customers still do, and I still do, 
it's an easier shift. You, you're never desperate to get a harder gear. <laughs> That's know, true. You, and you're desperate for the easy gears. You know, you're going uphill. You're you go down a trail, then the you're going up a steep thing across on the other side of the creek or whatever, and you lose momentum so fast. You want that gear, and a rapid rise derailleur uh, gets you that gear more easily and more securely. If you only shift an index, then you don't know what ghost shifting is. But if you've ridden bikes for a long enough time, everyone who's gone up a hill and had the shifter lever slip a little bit, and then it, it goes into the harder. It goes into the harder gear. Well, yeah. in a rapid rise derailleur, if it slips, if it ghost shifts, it ghost shifts to an easier gear. Yeah. Which who cares? Thank you very much. Right. Um, <laughs> also, I think if like uh, you, you suffer some kind of mechanical, it's to me, it would seem like it would be nice that it defaults to an easier gear. Yeah, you can, you if can you spin break home. a cable, yeah, you're in the low gear, right? And that's not bad at all. Have, do you have you ever used a rapid rise derailleur? I've not. Do you have a bike that you would put one on if somebody gave one to you for free? Yes, I would actually. Okay. <laughs> that will never be proved, but you you will walk away with one. So where are you guys in the process? You're still 3D printing. Uh, you know, what's your hope that, that you guys would shepherd the process of its manufacturing or someone else would, would take it on? The design is uh, complete right okay. now. The, uh, it works. In contact with uh, one derailleur maker and one bicycle parts maker, two different people. One is in China, one is in Taiwan. These are places that are really experienced, really smart, really good at making things and have made parts for brands that I won't name. They know how to do their stuff. And we submitted CAD files for them, complete drawing things so that they knew what they were looking at. We explained the, these things to them and they're taking us seriously. So this morning an email I had, a, I got a little video a 3D printed prototype that seems to be functioning perfectly. And if we approve it, then they will make us one that we can put on a bike. Maybe they'll print it out of metal. Right. And eventually it'll be made with a combination of machining, forging, casting, you know, whatever whatever makes sense for it. And I don't I don't know how expensive it's going to be or how cheap it's gonna be or do you have a what uh, kind of tooth capacity is it gonna uh, are you guys designing around? Well, you know, with those tab extenders, you can do anything, but you know, without a tab extender and a typical dropout, it'll probably go to 36 teeth or 40 teeth or something okay. like that. Cool. Yeah. Even Shimano rear derailleurs, you know, I mean, I have one rated to 34 teeth, and I have it on bike that I have a 42. So Shimano, I think, at one point they said, well, in friction you can do that, but in indexing, you know, you should stick with the listed specs. But a lot of times you can go beyond them. But that's what we're going for. <clears throat> and um, you know, we want it to be, ideally it would be a really nice looking derailleur. And I don't know how, how much we'll compromise that, but I don't want to do an expensive piece of art that nobody buys or nobody takes seriously. So you guys have had the, you know, the concept of the country bike around for a long time. Mm -hmm. What was your reaction when gravel bikes were becoming a thing? Well, 
You know, I mean, I think it's fine. I mean, big picture, another kind of bike. The thing is, a gravel bike is just a really practical bike. Right. It's a practical road bike, and you can ride on trails. So I'm all for the category. We don't use the term gravel bikes here because it lumps us in with other bikes that, that are a lot different from what we consider a practical road bike or a country bike. So it seems like, um, you know, within the last couple of years, there's been kind of a renewed interest in, in RIV. You know, you, you put up a frame and it sells out, you know, within the hour or, or within the day. Is that unexpected or what's going yeah. on there? <laughs> <coughs> we have sold 130 bikes in eight minutes before. The first time it was hard to believe that it was happening. It's not a happy event, really, <laughs> because what it means is that this bike that took us 14 months to get sells out in seven minutes. And then it's going to be another nine months, maybe, if we already have another order for a run of those before we get that bike again. And in the meantime, we have to say no to a lot of people who want the bike. But when there's a scarcity of bikes and people know there's a scarcity, it just creates this sort of feeding frenzy. Right. It makes for really good days, really good weeks, maybe a really good week. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, it's back to normal. Break even for us is about six to $7,000 a day in deposits. If we have a week of $3,000 days, that means we've lost $30,000. Right. And we still have expenses, payroll, other bills coming in. <clears throat> a good day, like on a big frame day, you know, it might be, you know, sixty to ninety thousand dollars. But it, it just averages out over time. When did you guys start seeing that response to the the frames? Was it during COVID? All of a sudden people were kind of having this this, this mad rush to, to buy bikes or was it before? Well, the mad rush is COVID, but we started selling in 1995, the first frames, and up to about 2006, almost nobody had heard of us, you know, even locally, you know, people, we'd be riding the bikes around here and nobody knew what they were. So that was like almost a decade right. of anonymity and we're trying to, from about 2010 on, it's been a lot of word of mouth. A normal customer of ours, they'll buy one bike and then they'll buy another bike in a different category or they'll buy a bike for a spouse or they'll recommend it to a friend. So we're really lucky in that way that people like the bikes enough to sometimes get more than one of them. I mean, if you like bikes a lot, just like if you like anything, you have more than one of them. If right. you like <laughs> photography, you have more than one camera. You know, we, we don't ever sit down and think, what can we design and then create a demand for? And how do we do that? We absolutely never do that. All the, all the bikes that we have are bikes that we personally want to exist. This is a prototype of a road bike that we're going to have called the Charlie H. Gallup. And we already have more, tr slightly more traditional road bikes. We have the Rodeo and we have a Rodini and they both have straight tubes and all that. But this one, it's got this droop tube here 
and that just allows more crotch clearance so somebody can ride a bigger frame than they would ordinarily ride and get the handlebars higher. It's got these massively long chain stays. You yeah, know. these are, this is at least a country mile, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like a lot of road bikes, you know, you can fit a finger in there right. with a 28. This is a 42. <laughs> you could almost fit a boxing glove in there. Yeah. You know, with a longer wheelbase, it just stabilizes it. Just like a longer skateboard, a longer surfboard, a longer car, right. a longer kayak, canoe, anything. Yeah. It doesn't wiggle as much, so it's more stable. It's smoother as it goes down the road. And, it, and a lot of people think, well, that's got to come at a cost. You know, it's got to be hard to maneuver, hard to go around a tight turn on. No, absolutely not. It's, it's easy. And so mm -hmm. this is uh, just, it was an experiment. It's the way that we wanted to do a bike. Yeah. And it's not really taking the place of our more conventional bikes, which are really nice also. But this has some advantages. So this is still a prototype? It's a prototype, yeah. When's this model going to come out? Ah, 2023, maybe spring. Yeah. Yeah, so it's got a lug there, and this is TIG welded with a fillet over it. And uh, we always have try to have nice fork crowns. Right. Well, we do have nice fork crowns. <laughs> and slender blades mm. with a nice curve at the bottom. Yeah. Try to have details like that, and then brazons for easy racking and, and we do kickstand plates also so yeah. you know you can do that yeah sort of an anti-racing <laughs> um detail on the bike yeah like on, on the kind of uh unracer front i feel like there's finally some momentum behind it yeah you know yeah personalities like you know ron ultra romance you know crust um you know like kind of what we do on the channel, but there's actually like recognized people that aren't pinning numbers on that are kind of starting to, you know, make their own waves in, in the bike industry. Yeah, well that's as it should be. And all those other companies, you know, Crust and Surly are certainly, you know, far out there, you know, at, at, the, at the front of it. Um, but I think it, it's great. In Europe, people always rode bikes practically people just getting around, you know, those are old stories. I don't need to tell people that they ride bikes like that <laughs> in Copenhagen or anything. But in the United States, you know, bikes were for kids and they were for racers. And we never had this middle practical ground. Right. And so when people started getting into bikes, the only adult bike was, was a racer. The only respectable way to ride a bike was in a racing mode, a drop bar handle bike where you wear cleats, and you dress aerodynamically, and you go out there and you do long, hard rides to nowhere, or uh, you know, high-speed weekend rides where you're trying to beat your friends. And you know, that's not using a bike to its potential. That's one way to ride a bike. And the thing about bikes is you can ride them any single way that you want. You don't have to ride the Grant Peterson way or anything like that. You know, you can do any. You can use them for travel, entertainment, health fun, fitness, exploring, shopping, commuting, all that kind of thing. So that's the kind of bike that we like to do. And right now, I'm just as you said, it's popular to do that. You don't, you don't have to be 
ashamed to have a basket on your bike. I'd say you're insane not to have <laughs> at least one bike without a basket on it because they're so useful. And yeah. So th there's these upright bar things. People used to uh, associate upright bars with kids or unserious riding. And yet yeah. you put an upright bar on a bike and just turns it into a magnificent beast. Right. And then you put a basket on there with a net on it and a bag in there. And there's lots of great bags being made right now, too. There's so, all, there's so many good things, you know, happening with bicycles that weren't happening even 10 years ago. Right. Certainly not 40 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago. But right now it's sort of reaching a, a normalcy that I never would have guessed. Mm -hmm. And it's fantastic. So see any of those other companies doing those kinds of bikes as competition. I'm just rah-rah for everybody doing that. Yeah, and I feel like you, you know, a lot of uh, the owners of those companies have been greatly influenced by you in the past, and they're just at that you know, point in their lives where they can start their own brands and you know, have their own products made. Yeah, so. well, that's good. I mean, you know, and that's just a natural way that things happen. I was influenced by Richard Sachs. I was influenced by Tom Ritchie. I was influenced by a guy named Peter Johnson, you know. Um, I had influences and then I sort of took those and they gave me a direction or some values and it sort of, you know, made it work for me and added some differences, you know, but it's all good stuff. But there's so many different kinds of bicycles and yeah. most of them are pretty good. Yeah, yeah, well, I know our channel is deeply influenced by, by uh, Rev, uh, you know, part of the reason I got into fly fishing was I, I think I had stumbled upon an article that you'd written in the River Reader about bamboo fly rods. I was like, oh, that's, yeah. that sounds like such a romantic thing to do on a bike. <laughs> well, thank you. That's, I didn't know that, and <laughs> I find that delightful and happy making. So what is the, going to be the future of, of Rivendell? Where do you see it going? Um, you know, like what's, you know, are you going to probably leave it at some point? You know, what's, what do you want uh, Rivendell to do in the future? Well, I'm 67 now. It's been around for about 28 years. I've never enjoyed work <laughs> more than I do now. I've never enjoyed riding more than I do now. I wish I were 40 years younger, 50 years younger, but I feel like I'm healthy. I. Uh, and I love the people that I work with. I want to provide good jobs and a good future for them. I don't have any plans to retire, but practically, you know, I would like to see Will and Vince and James and Antonio and Sergio and, you know, the younger people sort of continue it, not as my legacy or anything like that. I would totally be happy being anonymous. But I want them to continue to have good work, make more money, have more autonomy, and even though they're young. And when I say young, I'm talking about late 20s to 34. They yeah. have a depth of knowledge and historical knowledge that uh, of bikes that uh, were made 10 years before they were born. So, and yet they know about these bikes, you know, they know how stuff works. And so that's really 
uh, it bodes well for the future, I think, of Rivendell. Cool. Uh, well, thanks, Grant, so much for your time for the tour and you know a little bit about uh, you know, some, some bike nerdery about the design. Thanks for coming down. Thanks for the opportunity and for making it easy. So that's it for this podcast. We've got a few more lined up. Thanks again to Arkel for sponsoring and resurrecting it. If you enjoyed it, give their site a visit or just message them and let them know uh, that you appreciate it. As always, everybody, keep the supple side down.